We continue to work our way through the prophet Ezekiel. And this morning we look at chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to begin reading at verse 16 of Ezekiel chapter 36. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or you can turn in the uh, Pew Bible there, page 856. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations. And they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. And yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the fields so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds. And you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land was laid waste and has now become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. 
then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. Why do we do the things that we do? Well, that's a difficult question to answer because uh, we all, almost always, act with a multitude of motivations. Motivations uh, pure and impure, motivations conscious and unconscious. And so as I was uh, preparing this sermon, I asked myself that question. uh, Why was I doing it? What was my motivation? Well, um, preaching is my job, so I was motivated to do my work well. It's my duty. And then, of course, I knew that I would have to stand up before all of you this morning and, and have something to say. I was motivated to some degree by a fear of embarrassment. I do have that occasional speaker's nightmare in my dream. I'm sitting on the front row and someone is at the podium introducing me as the speaker who's about to come up. And I'm thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to say. So I admit the fear of embarrassing myself. That's a motivation. As I was preparing my sermon, I was thinking, well, personal pride comes into play. I mean, I want people to like me. I want people to think well of me, so I think if I preach well, I'll be praised for it. That's always a temptation. Or more nobly, I I was motivated by a desire to do some good. I believe that the preaching of the message of the Bible is useful for people, and so I want to help others. Or more noble still, I think that good preaching is pleasing to God. That's why I want to serve the God who loves me. The God who has put me on this earth for a purpose and proclaiming his truth to his people brings honor to God and bringing honor to God is my highest purpose in life. As I said, there there are a multitude of motivations that move us to act in any given situation. And Ephesus, since Aristotle, have always tried to find that, that one great overriding motivation in human action. The one that that has the most to, to commend it, it seems to me, is that we all ultimately are motivated to pursue our own happiness. Now, if you understand happiness in its broadest sense, this is almost true by definition. I mean, we, we seek our own happiness as an end in itself, a goal to which we use other things to obtain. We do what we do whether it's to live as a party animal at a playboy mansion in Hollywood or to give our life in service to the poor in Bangladesh, we do what we do because we think it will bring us happiness. Either the happiness of immediate pleasure or the happiness of deep satisfaction from doing good to others. In in some ways, it's all the same ultimate motivation. The 17th century philosopher, mathematician, Blaise Pascal, put it like this. He says, all men seek happiness. This is so without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. It's the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So what about God? Why does God do the things that he does? What motivates him? Well, the Bible actually gives us a variety of motivations for God's actions in the world. Sometimes God acts out of 
anger, a righteous anger. God is holy. And God hates human sin as a great evil. And in our study of Ezekiel, we've seen how often the prophet speaks of, of God's wrath being poured out against the adulterous infidelity of His people in their idolatry and in their cruel corruption. God acts out of a concern of righteousness and, and justice in the world. And sometimes the Bible tells us that God, God acts out of His, His love and compassion. God responds to human needs. And when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and the Bible says that the Lord saw their mercy. He heard their cries. So He came down to rescue them. As God acts out of love and mercy for His people. These are very real motivations in God Himself. And they're often on display in the biblical story. But, but what is the supreme motivation? The overarching drive that moves God to act. What in God corresponds to our seeking after happiness? Well, the answer that we find in the prophecy of Ezekiel is very clear. What motivates God to act is supremely the honor and the glory of His own name. And I think nowhere is this motivation stated more clearly and forcefully than in the passage we're considering here this morning. I want you to look at the two verses that I said at the very beginning of our study of Ezekiel were the key to the whole book. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. I want us to see how this motivation of God to uphold the honor and the glory of His holy name stands behind all that He does in judgment and in redemption. And then we'll consider how this motivation ought to affect us. So first, let's look at how God acts in judgment. And that's where this passage begins in verse 16 of chapter 36. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and by their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. Now, we've seen already how the Lord through Ezekiel was not shy about using very graphic language to describe the moral pollution of his people Israel. And so it is here. Now, this language, I think, is especially suited to the ritual concerns of a priest like Ezekiel. See, there's nothing sinful about a, a, a woman's menstrual bleeding, but exposure to blood or other bodily fluids necessarily rendered a person ritually unclean and disqualified him or her from temple worship. And that's what Israel's sin had done to them. They were disqualified from worshiping a holy God. Verse 18, so I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. 
As we've said before, the people of Israel presumed upon God. They believed that the Lord, Yahweh, was their God. He was on their side. He was their protector. He was their benefactor, no matter how they lived. But they were wrong. The Lord is holy. And they were guilty. And they got exactly what their conduct deserved. Exactly what justice demanded. You see, the Lord could not allow these people who were supposed to represent Him in the world to continue to misrepresent Him by acting just as badly or even worse than the pagan nations all around them. You see, the Lord's own reputation, His own image in the world was at stake. And so the Babylonians became the Lord's instrument of judgment. They first attacked Jerusalem and took a large number in exile, Ezekiel among them. And then they later destroyed Jerusalem and demolished the temple. This was the Lord's judgment of His sinful people. His holy name demanded it. But this act of judgment had an unfortunate consequence. Look at verse 20. Wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave His land. You see, as these defeated Israelites fled to other countries, you can easily imagine the locals asking one another, who are these people? Oh, they're the Israelites from the land of Judah. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar conquered their city and deported these survivors. Oh, what's the name of their God then? Yahweh or, or something like that, I've heard. Oh, he must not be much to look at, that Yahweh seeing as how he let his people be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, their god must not be better than any of the other gods of the other lands that our king has conquered. Oh, glory to our god Marduk, they would say. You see, the Israelites didn't have to say anything to profane the name of the Lord Yahweh. Their very presence as a defeated people said enough. Yahweh, the God of Israel, became known as a weak and ineffectual God, unable to defend his own people in their own land. He was just a, uh, a, a petty provincial deity, ordinary, common. You see, that's what the word profane means in the Hebrew. And that's just how the Lord Yahweh appeared. Nothing special, that God. And so you see, the disgrace of Israel meant disgrace for Israel's God in the eyes of the surrounding nations. And so the Lord says in verse 21, I had concern for my holy name. You see, the Lord had acted to guard the honor of his name in sending the people into exile. Their sin required it. His righteousness demanded it. But that act had the paradoxical effect of just profaning his name still further. Now he will act again, this time in mercy and in grace. But it will be for the same purpose, governed by the same motivation. He will rescue his people. He will be their good shepherd to seek out the lost sheep, gather them to himself. He will restore his people. But it won't be because they deserve it. No, they don't. They forfeited all rights to his goodness. He will redeem them just for the sake of his holy name. Verse 22, therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. 
I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. The Lord God will act in redemption. And when he acts, he will address his people's every need as refugees scattered far from their homeland, as impure sinners hopelessly polluted by sin, as congenital lawbreakers unable to live in obedience to God, and as a disgraced people mocked by the nations. The Lord will act powerfully, unilaterally. He will act to rescue them in every way. First is as refugees. Scattered far from their homeland, he will gather them. Verse 24, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. The Lord would prove true to his promise to Abraham to give his people a good land. And you know, as Christians, we have the promise of a gathering far greater than anything the Jews ever experienced. Jesus promises that when he returns, he will gather his people from the four corners of the earth. And he will give us not just a land, but a new earth as our inheritance. And second, as impure sinners, hopelessly polluted by sin, the Lord their God promises to cleanse them. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Like a lost dog that's finally found after a week of wandering on the streets, the first thing they will need is a good bath. All the uncleanness of their idolatry and their bloodshed and their greed and their injustice will all be washed away in a gracious act of mercy and forgiveness. And you know, isn't there a a, a universal sense that our, our moral failure Our sense of having done what we know is wrong. It it, it gives us a sense of feeling dirty. Sin is a form of pollution. It is ugly. It is rotten. It is defiling. We must be washed clean of it. And only God can do that. And so the prayer of David in Psalm 51 is a prayer we all echo. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And here the Lord, you see, promises that He will do just that. And and isn't this washing, isn't this one of the great blessings that is ours in Christ? I think of Paul's words to the Christians of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or I think of John's words in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful, He is just, He will forgive us our sins, and He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
And as that happens, we can we can heed the words that we find in Hebrews. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The symbolism of baptism there, the washing that is ours through the work of Christ. As impure sinners, hopelessly polluted by sin, the Lord promises to cleanse us. But you know, in God's saving purpose, forgiveness in itself will not be enough. You see, the people of Israel, they could be forgiven for their past sins, they could be washed clean, but, but unless they're changed on the inside, they'll fall right back into their own ways. So third here, as congenital lawbreakers, unable to live in obedience to God, the Lord promises to transform them. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is one of the great statements in the whole Bible of the saving work of God in the life of the believer in what we now call the new covenant. Under the old covenant, you see, the Lord gave the people his law. But because of the sinfulness of the human heart, all that law did was simply stir up sin all the more. I think we all know what this is like. I remember as a, as a kid. I used to get my younger brother to do what I wanted him to do by simply telling him that he wasn't allowed to do it. We called it reverse psychology. You see, all the law does is just show the true sinfulness of the human heart. But in the new covenant, the Lord promises to give us a new heart and a new spirit. Now, in Hebrew culture, the heart is that part of the human person that thinks and decides and wills things to happen. And the spirit reflects the inner dimensions of attitude, disposition, motivation. In other words, in giving us a new heart and a new spirit, the Lord is promising that he would change us from the inside such that our desires would begin to match our duties. You see, the Lord would not simply set his law in front of us. He would put his law within us. We would want to do what we ought to do. Now that, you see, is real freedom, real moral freedom. And that's what God promises to do in a, in a provisional way here and now. And it's something he will bring to full completion when we are glorified with Christ in heaven. For in heaven, we will fully delight in all our duties. We will want nothing but the will of God. What a glorious existence that would be. And the Lord promises here, he won't just change our spirits. He promises to give us his spirit. God's own Holy Spirit will dwell within us, he says. And I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I think the Hebrew here is even stronger. I will make it such that you will walk in my decrees and keep and do my laws. As one writer put it, God will do in and for Israel what Israel's history so gloomily demonstrated they could not do for themselves. God's grace will give what law, God's law requires. 
And you know, I think it's this passage that was in Jesus' own mind when he spoke to that teacher of the Jews named Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again. The passage we read earlier, John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. In other words, in order to enter the kingdom of God, one must be washed and one must be transformed. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit, Jesus said. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things? I mean, it's right here in the Scriptures, isn't it? Ezekiel wrote about it. This spiritual cleansing, this inner transformation by the Spirit, this must take place to enter God's kingdom. You must be born again, transformed by the Spirit in your inner being. This is what we call regeneration. That work of God by which He changes us on the inside. God promises that He will do it. And finally, as a disgraced people, mocked by the nations, the Lord will act in blessing. Verse 28, you will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. God here will vindicate his people before all those who oppose them. Their suffering will be turned into the bounty of his blessing. And what will be the result of this blessing? God will be glorified. Verse 33, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns. The ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken. And I will do this. And why will God do this? Why, why will he bring such bountiful blessing on his people? Verse 32, I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. It's certainly not because you deserve it. In fact, he says, be ashamed. Be disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. No, God acts in judgment and God acts in redemption ultimately and supremely for his own glory. Let me read it again. Verse 22. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. This is it. This is it. 
This is the ultimate reason why God does what He does. He acts for the sake of His holy name. That is, that God delights in showing forth His own glory. Which is to say that God delights in Himself. God delights in revealing Himself in His creation. He desires that all the nations might know that He is the Lord. Now, God didn't need to create anything to to experience this delight. God delights in His own glory as it's perfectly revealed within Himself. As a triune God from all eternity, the, the Father has always delighted in His own Son, the Son of God, who is the perfect image of God. The Son who is the Word who was with God and who was God from eternity. Jesus, the Son of God, prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. From eternity, God took delight in beholding that image of His own glory in His Son. And the Bible tells us that it was through the Son and by Him and for Him that all things were created. In other words, creation itself was designed to show forth the glory of God as displayed in the Son of God. And when the Son became one of us, in the man Jesus of Nazareth, John can say the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, John writes, but the only Son who is Himself God has made Him known. And so the Father takes delight in His Son. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. Do you see this? God takes delight in the revelation of His own glory. The glory that is revealed supremely in His Son. The glory that is reflected in all His works in bringing the people out of the slavery of Egypt in the Exodus. We read, I will gain glory for Myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. See, this is the ultimate reason why God does what He does to make known His glory. This is what brings God happiness, joy, delight. Now, that may sound strange to some of you. I mean, most of us, quite frankly, have a rather man-centered view of reality. Even Christians sometimes think that because God is love, His highest motivation must be to show His love to us by saving us. It's all about us, isn't it? And and again, doesn't it sound a little self-centered of God to be so concerned supremely with Himself And the glory of his own name. So, for example, the Lord says in in Isaiah 48, For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. How can God speak this way? I mean, if you or I did it, I mean, it, it would be the epitome of arrogance. But think about it like this. What could God possibly value More than himself. I mean, after all, God himself is the ultimate source of all goodness, all truth, all beauty. 
And all that we can in any way call good or true or beautiful is but a reflection of it. It's a, a pointer to our great God. And so for God to yield his glory to another, to value anything higher than himself, would simply be a form of idolatry, wouldn't it? Even we ourselves, we are valuable as human beings only because we are created in the image of God. As we are designed to reflect God in the world. You see, that's the only thing that makes us special among all the creatures of the universe. Yes, God loves us. And you see, it is precisely that love that moves him to give us the greatest gift possible. And what is that? It is the knowledge of himself. God gives us himself. In his love, he redeems us so as to draw us into the joy and the happiness that he has in himself. To know God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. And that is also eternal joy. As Jesus prayed concerning His disciples, Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You, may they also be in us that they may have the full measure of My joy within them. My joy. Jesus' own joy. In sharing in the glory of the Father. That's what he invites us. To share in. As we come to know this great God. You see it here. Here we have this wonderful convergence, don't we? God has so created the world. He has so created us. That his greatest source of happiness happens to be our greatest source of happiness also. That is the revelation of the knowledge of the glory of of God. And we exist. All things exist. God Himself exists for the sake of His holy name. We all exist for knowing and making known His glory. You know, we seek happiness in many ways, don't we? But the Bible says that ultimately... There is only one place where it can truly be found. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the, fuel, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in, in our own way. Without bothering about Him, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from Himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. This is what it's all about, you see. Can you see that? Can you see that? Do you see something of the, the most excellent revelation of God in His glory? Can you see it? Well, the reality is you never will see it. You never will grasp the significance of what I'm saying here this morning until your eyes are opened to see something of that glory yourself. God's grace must be at work in our lives 
to see something of the overwhelming excellence and beauty and power and love and goodness of the glory of God. And many people never see it. And speaking about it to them is like trying to describe the glory of a sunset to someone who is blind. It, it, it doesn't register. It doesn't make any sense. But you see, Ezekiel saw it. Ezekiel, in that initial vision of the glory of God, he saw that divine chariot with wheels within wheels on which was mounted the throne of God in all His glory. He saw it. He was overwhelmed by it. And his view of the world was changed forever. His vision of reality became unchangeably God-centered. That's what happened. When he glimpsed the awesome glory of God, he knew what it was all about. That God acted in the world for the sake of His own holy name. And Ezekiel found his delight in that purpose above all else. And so you see the ultimate reason that God acts in judgment and the ultimate reason that God acts in redemption is for the sake of His holy name to reveal who He is so that the whole world might know that He is the Lord, do you see it? This glory of God, this revelation of Himself. Well, you may be saying, I wish I saw it better. Uh, uh, tell me where to look. Where do I go? Well, if you want to know who God is, if you want to see God reveal Himself most clearly, most magnificently in all His glory. If you want to see where God has acted most clearly for the sake of His holy name, there is one place you must go. The one place where God most fully and completely in judgment and redemption revealed Himself and His glory at the same time. It's in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. As Jesus approached his appending death, he prayed to the Father. He says, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so Jesus goes to the cross. And in the cross of Christ, God acted for the glory of His own name. There, God acted in judgment against our sin. God, the judge, poured out His wrath on Himself when Jesus Christ died on that cross. The sky was darkened and Jesus felt the, the experience of hell itself in that moment when He took upon Himself the sins of the world. There, God acted for the sake of His holy name. But there also we see the supreme demonstration of the love and the grace of God. As God Himself acted in His Son, Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, to rescue us from our sin and to give us new life, not because we deserve it, but for the sake of His holy name, to reveal the God that He is, a God of grace, a God of mercy, Supremely, 
In the cross of Jesus Christ, our God reveals his glory. As a God of justice and a God of mercy, as a God of grace and a God of truth. And now you see, he calls us. He calls us as his people to be a community that displays to his world the grace and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls us to be restored as the image of God in the world, to reflect his glory, to reflect to the world who he is, both as individuals and as a corporate community, as we follow Jesus Christ. And by the spirit, we allow his life to be manifest in our lives as we join with Christ in ministry and in mission. He will bring glory to himself. And, you know, as we do so. We will discover the joy that we were created for, the joy of knowing our God and making him known. So why do you do the things that you do? Ultimately, you see, we all seek our own happiness. But the Bible reveals to us where our ultimate happiness lies in knowing the glory of God our Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And Jesus invites us to join in His joy as we join in His prayer. Our Father, may Your name be holy. Let's pray. The psalmist writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Who will not fear You, O Lord, and bring glory to Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed. O Lord, we pray that You would open us, open our eyes to the glory of Your righteous acts. The way you act in judgment. The way you act in in gracious, merciful redemption. They both reveal who you are as a holy and loving God. And that judgment, that redemption is displayed supremely in what you've done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, open our eyes to your glory. Lord, may we see that our ultimate happiness, the thing which is worthy of pursuing as an end in itself, is found in knowing you and making you known as the great and glorious God that you are. Lord, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We declare your majesty. We proclaim that your name is exalted.